right, we are back. Let's take it where we left off, which was, in this case, talking about the habitability of planets. Astronomers think they can reconstruct the history of how, uh, how stars get started uh, pretty well at this point. But when they do apply data on how hot stars are when they start and how they tend to heat up uh, with time, and you work your way back, no one can figure out how it is the Earth was as warm as it was four billion years ago. Since the sun at that time should have been 25 to 30% cooler than it is today, the Earth should have been a frozen ball of ice. But clearly it wasn't. How do we know this? According to New Scientist magazine, at least the article by Stuart Clark in the current edition, notes that deposits of the mineral zircon from rocks in Australia have been dated to 4.4 billion years ago, and they contain oxygen isotopes that point to their having formed in a watery environment. So if the sun was that much cooler, which is quite a bit cooler, how is it we weren't an ice ball? Well, nobody's sure. Of course, at times we have been an ice ball. About 2.5 billion years ago, the Earth had its first major um, episode of glaciation. And yes, the world's oceans apparently froze over. We've had some episodes of glaciation recently in the past million years or so. In fact, we are now between a period of glaciers, at least so we thought until this whole global warming thing kicked in a couple decades ago. Under normal circumstances, due to conditions we don't quite fully understand, the Earth would be expected to get full of ice layers again in, I don't know, a couple 10,000 years. What's going to happen now is anybody's guess. But there's a little aside in this article, which I thought was fascinating. Um, if you look at the surface of Venus, which we can now do using orbiting spacecraft that shoot uh, radar beams down on the planetary surface, um, if you count the craters on Venus, which does allow you to estimate age, uh, it looks like the surface is just 500 million to a billion years in age, which is quite mysterious. Make a note, Mr. Miller, we're going to have to get somebody on from the Planetary Society to talk about Venus, our twin. Same issue of New Scientist, wonderful article about uh, the gaps in evolution, which um, still exist, but are getting smaller all the time as we fill them in with new information. The article points out how a lot of times scientists are looking where these gaps lie and going out to find rocks of exactly that age to pick up the fossils that must be in them. Uh, using that approach was what led scientists up to Baffin Island to find fossils that showed how it is that lobe-finned fish made their way onto, become, onto dry land to become the first amphibians. Great article. I highly recommend it. Same issue as a wonderful piece about food fraud and how they were able to detect a horse uh, DNA in, in hamburgers, knowing that something was wrong there. But the article talks about how we should be, probably be eating insects since, uh, since it's so much easier to, to create some nourishing protein using small animals with fast metabolic rates. But the magazine's editors asked, uh, while, we're, while we're checking out all this food fraud, why don't we rethink... Uh, the taboos we have on things like horse meat. They said horse meat's perfectly edible, so why let it go to waste? What about algae, jellyfish, invasive species, or insects? By the way, we want to thank Joseph, who emailed us a, a wonderful piece about seafood fraud, which apparently is rife. When DNA testing was applied to various types of fish, it was discovered that, well, in Southern California, 52% of the fish was mislabeled. Apparently the worst in the nation. 
But for certain types of fish, this is, this is astonishing. For example, of the nine samples of sea bass that were tested, none were sea bass. Of 27 samples of yellowtail tested, 24 were phony. Turned out rates for sole, halibut, salmon, and cod um, were generally accurate. And I'm not sure if that's good news because apparently a lot of the cod that is on the market is, comes from fish that are too small. Anyway, we'll continue to follow this story, and we thank, uh, thank Joe for sending that. But uh, before we leave this topic, I want to go back to the article, at least the little uh, sidebar they had in the piece in New Scientist about, uh, about eating insects. They note that an estimated 80% of the global population has bugs in their diet. They quoted someone from a company called Ento, which seeks to persuade Westerners to eat more insects. Apparently, Ento has been working with chefs to create attractive protein alternatives like waxworm caterpillars, which, according to the company, taste like sausages when fresh and pistachios when dried. It was noted that cricket pate has been a surprising success in recent taste tests. Yeah, Rachel LeBrock had that, had that piece in the News and Review some months back about uh, chocolate-covered crickets, and we failed to follow up on that. Now, this program could use some assistance. By the way, if you're just in doing an internship in radio, which is something that can be done, we had our own intern here several years ago on the show from Sacramento State University, Letty Chavez. She was great to have on board. Uh, and frankly, at this point... We could use more help. Drop us a line at info at Radio Parallax if you are interested. We had a couple stories we could put you on right away, like Goldfish in Lake Tahoe. Peace in the Sacramento Bee by Richard Chang, which I have to quote from with sadness, since we find the topic of invasive species depressing. But the article quotes Kevin Thomas, an environmental scientist at the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, noting that the warm water fish, goldfish, commonly raised as pets, are invading Tahoe, taking food and space from native species and growing to be quite large. Kevin Thomas was quoted as saying they didn't have any predators, so they're able to grow up to 14 inches and 4 pounds. Researchers and environmentalists say this trend is not new. Local residents have long reported sightings of gigantic bright orange creatures. These fish were likely dumped into the lake or used as bait. Peace notes that for now, the giant goldfish are a nuisance more than anything else. They're known for their big appetites, and they secrete nutrients that promote algae growth. Good God. Peace quoted Ted Thayer, environmental coordinator at the Tahoe Regional Planning Agency, is saying people need to be very careful not to introduce new species. There's a potential for great damage to an ecosystem. And by the way, it's illegal to dump fish anywhere in the state of California. Although I have to confess, I did stash a particularly obnoxious Jack Dempsey in the William Pond Park a couple decades ago. Dempseys are tropical fish, and I'm 99.9% sure it did not survive past about October of that given year, but darn it, I shouldn't have done it, and neither should you. And speaking of the Army Corps of Engineers, which we weren't, but, but will now, this item caught my attention from the week. Lake Michigan and Lake Huron have dropped to their lowest levels on record, which is threatening their shipping and fishing industries. A new report from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers found that the two lakes are 29 inches below their long-term average, lower than they've been since recording keeping began back in 1918. And most alarming about this, half the drop has occurred since January of 2012. Peace quoted a hydrologist as saying, We're in an extreme situation. The Great Lakes hold 84% of the fresh water in North America and their major shipping routes. 
Researchers are partly blaming climate change, noting that years of record high temperatures have accelerated evaporation from the lakes. At the same time, rainfall has lessened. But here's the part that caught my attention. Dredging to deepen the navigational channels of the St. Clair River, into which Michigan and Huron empty, may have also caused as much as a 16-inch drop in the lake's water level over the years. So while we're glad that the Army Corps of Engineers has authored this study, we just have to ask, what are you doing at the St. Clair River? By the way, remember all that talk about how something had to be done about the Mississippi Delta because... Well, among, among other reasons, the Army Corps of Engineers decided to straighten the Mississippi, which made it flow faster and was supposed to be better for commerce, but, of course, caused it to, um, well, not deposit silt, as, as it has done forever in the Mississippi Delta, which was one reason why Hurricane Katrina caused so much damage to that area of Louisiana. Well, they talked a few years back about how, you know, we might want to do something about that, but they said, oh, it's very expensive. It would cost maybe $100 billion. So as far as we know here at Radio Parallax, they've done a whole lot of nothing. And uh, if you've got any data on this, dear listener, info at radioparallax.com, please. And uh, another piece in CNN.com by James Walker, which is water-related, warrants some commentary. Noted Mr. Walker, the plight of the stranded Carnival Triumph last week was a pungent reminder of what a dubious business cruising is. The industry has been remarkably successful at portraying cruising as a safe and affordable family vacation. Notes Walker, in fact, onboard fires occur with alarming frequency. In the past two years alone, 10 were recorded in the press, and of course many go unreported. And while it's true that cruises are cheap, that's only because the big cruise lines are incorporated in foreign countries like Panama and Liberia so they can avoid U.S. taxes, safety regulations, and labor laws. Notes Walker, as a result, cleaners on the Royal Caribbean work 12 hours a day, seven days a week, for as little as $156 a week with no tips. He notes it's time to step up oversight on this essentially unregulated industry whose standard reactions when things go wrong is to just strike up the band and hand out the daiquiris. And yeah, I'm sure David Rosenblum's going to have a thing or two to say about that as well. And here's an item for you if your retirement plans involve a Harley Davidson. Researchers at Brown University have noted that motorcyclists age 60 and older are three times more likely to be hospitalized after crashing than younger riders. After examining data on seven years' worth of motorcycle crashes that required emergency medical care, they found that though riders between 20 and 39 had 14 times the number of accidents that riders over the age of 60 did, the older riders had two and a half times the risk of being seriously hurt, sustaining far more fractures, dislocations, and internal organ injuries, including brain damage, than their younger counterparts. Researchers speculate that worsening vision, balance, and reaction times may make older riders less able to avoid traffic collisions, adding, your bones become more brittle and you lose muscle mass as you get older. That was according to the study author. To which, here at Radio Parallax, we would like to editorialize, if you're getting up towards 60 years of age and experiencing that midlife crisis, and thinking you can recreate a youth you never had by getting a big Harley... Well, you might want to rethink that and start with something just a little bit smaller and easier to handle. That's what I did a couple years back, and so far, no broken bones. Not to imply, of course, that I was 
buying a motorcycle as part of a midlife crisis. No, sir. When I had one of those, I dealt with it the traditional way. Jumping into a nutty relationship. And speaking of nutty relationship behavior, apparently Steve Martin, actor, author, banjo player, and at times comedian, is now a father at age 69. Martin fathered his first child with his second wife, Anne Stringfield, age 41. Though the child was born last December, the reclusive star managed to keep its existence a secret from the media until last week. A source told the New York Post how they kept it a secret, nobody knows. What I liked about the reporting on this was the news that when Martin married Stringfield back in 2007, he surprised guests by inviting them to a party without telling them it was, in fact, a wedding. All right, I'm dying to talk about uh, the cover story on The Current Economist about the missing $20 trillion from the world economy. And The Economist is a very conservative, business-oriented publication. And when they put, um, when they put a picture on their cover of a guy with a parrot in his shoulder and a bunch of gold bars on a uh, tropical island behind him with the headline, How to Stop Companies and People Dodging Tax, well... This is worth some talking about, uh, but um, not on today's show because we just don't have that much time. This is a subject that, we, that deserves uh, a proper treatment. We mentioned in last week's program about how uh, while searching out in the garage, I uncovered a, uh, a cache of, um, of paperwork related to uh, uh, what went into the shows that aired six or seven years ago. Well, let's do a few of those items. Because I think it takes a look back sometimes to realize that, well, progress is being made, and things we're talking about on the program today are, well, they're on the average better than the things we were talking about back in 06. Such as this one, dated June 13th, 2006. Dateline Washington. U.S. Senator John Kerry of Massachusetts said Tuesday, Dateline Washington. U.S. Senator John Kerry of Massachusetts told an audience at the liberal Take Back America conference that he was sorry for voting to authorize the war in Iraq, calling the entire mission a mistake. Said Kerry, we were misled. We were given evidence that was not true. It was wrong, and I was wrong to vote for it. He went on to criticize supporters of the war who label anti-war activists and politicians as unpatriotic and pessimistic. Well, we hope that then-Senator and now Secretary of State John Kerry is making progress. piece from March 05 uh, got filed away which, after being talked about in the program, saying that a UCSF report says that Philip Morris influenced scientific articles. After researchers took a look at uh, once-secret industry documents, they detailed an elaborate effort by Philip Morris to raise doubts among doctors and public health officials about the well-established link between secondhand smoke and sudden infant death syndrome. We've been following that general topic for some years and we'll continue to do so. And I have to admit, I was somewhat suspicious about a piece that we talked about back in 2005, the headline of which was, Lobsters Unlikely to Feel Pain. In response to animal activists for years claiming that lobsters are in agony when they're cooked, a new study out of Norway back then concluded it's unlikely that lobsters feel pain. Concluding in a 39-page report, lobsters and crabs have some capacity for learning, but it's unlikely they can feel pain. The study came out of Norway and was funded by the Norwegian government. 
written by a scientist at the University of Oslo. And we thought they were full of it then and, and, and think that they're full of it now. And one piece I remember we went, we went on a bit about back in 2005, which was the fact that after Saddam Hussein entered a studio somewhere in Iraq to tape a response to the American invasion, which had taken place that week in his country, apparently our intelligence analysts couldn't decide whether it was really Saddam Hussein or not. Yet in the wake of the Patriot Act and uh, the mania in this country to supposedly protect ourselves from terrorism, we stuck cameras up everywhere, allegedly to pick bad guys out of the, uh, uh, of the crowds of cities, uh, relying upon facial recognition uh, technology. Uh, well, you know, when a leader of a country enters a studio and this same facial recognition technology can't decide, is it him? Well, let's just say we have some doubts about how much safer the streets of America have been made by all of those cameras. Although I can't say we agreed a lot with what Saddam Hussein had to say. After he was located and captured, we note a piece from December of 2003, which said, citing a United States intelligence official in Iraq, a report on weapons of mass destruction said that when asked if his government had such weapons, Saddam replied, no, of course not. The U.S. dreamed them up to have a reason to go to war with us. Well, he may not have been a good guy, but he was right about that. I did a disclaimer, right? Yes. Good. We're up against it on time, so let's go out on, a, on, a, uh, on an up note, quoting uh, an email that was sent to us by Shanta back in 2006. The heading was, Quotes About Religion Slash Philosophy. Starting with Seneca the Younger, who said, Religion is regarded by the common people as true, by the wise as false, and by the rulers as useful. We like this one from Ralph Waldo Emerson. I like the silence of a church before the preaching begins and after it ends. Also a bit of philosophizing by a man named Butch Hancock, who I don't know much about, but said, Butch, life in Lubbock, Texas, taught me two things. One is that God loves you and you're going to burn in hell. And the other is that sex is the most awful, filthy thing on earth and you should save it for someone you love. And let's close with what are described as three religious truths, which are, one, Jews do not recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And two, Protestants do not recognize the Pope as the leader of the Christian faith. And three, Baptists do not recognize each other in the liquor store or Hooters. We need a break, so let's take one. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We've got, we got plenty more with our pal Sean Mintz. Stick around. She's pretty useful, just like she should.